Hey folks, and welcome to Typology, the show in which we explore the mystery of the human personality through the lens of the Enneagram. My name is Anthony Skinner. I'm the producer of the show. We're really happy that you've joined us today. As is our custom in December, we replace some fan faves. And today we have a big time fan fave in Lisa Jo Baker, former attorney, best-selling author, Enneagram 2. We get under the hood with twos today, y'all. So if you are a two, or if you love someone who is a two, or if you work with someone who is a two, this is for you. Anyway, this is a good one, folks. So strap in and enjoy. That's it for me, Anthony Skinner. And now, here's the host of our show, Ian Cron. Lisa Joe Baker, welcome to Typology. Man, I cannot overstate how excited I am to be here today. Oh, well, I have been looking forward to this conversation because I love Enneagram 2s. You do? I, I do. Love I know. (laughs) Start by that with a verbal affirmation and relational care. (laughs) No, but I really—I mean that sincerely. I um, you know, Enneagram twos uh, for me when they're uh, at their best expression of themselves really uh, radiate uh, the unconditional altruistic love of God. They just sort of signal that out into the world in a way that no other number can. And so I've, I've had a number of twos in my life uh, at different moments who have left such a profoundly positive mark on me. That's such a beautiful way to put it. My goodness, I feel all warm and cozy. and My two heart is just like eating that up. Thank you very much. <laughs> Have you put on your softy clothes and you're going to get, if you lit a little scented candle and you're all ready to spend the afternoon? I, I'm cozy. Your words have just got me cozy right from the get-go. <laughs> so you you describe yourself as a, uh, a solid Enneagram 2 who is learning to navigate the waters of midlife as a born and groomed people pleaser. There you go. Yes. Reluctant, reluctant, I would add. It's taken me years to make peace with that because I think twos are always described as the servant or the helper. And those labels have never naturally felt like a good fit for me. Mm. Because when I listen to interviews with other twos who talk about how they love being behind the scenes or helping out with things or helping other people, I, I don't feel that way. Mm-hmm. I think I've often felt like my tunis enslaves me to other people and I don't mm-hmm. like that about myself. But mm-hmm. I listened to an episode that you had with the amazing Beatrice Chestnut and she used the word for two as the befriender. Yeah, And it completely shifted how I understood my tunis in a very positive way. So like and a belated thank you to both her and you for that. And of course I have her book like sitting next to me that I immediately oh, went and good. that episode. Good, good, good. So what was it about that that shifted your whole perspective from a negative to a positive about being an Enneagram 2? I think, well, gosh, we only have an hour or so, right? I just <laughs> want to address this. I think for me particularly because I really do believe a lot of my two qualities were shaped by my childhood relationship with my dad. Uh And I took a lot of notes during her podcast where she talks like how the big fear for a two is, will you take care of me? 
and I have to take care of you first to make sure you'll take care of me. Mm-hmm. And that played out massively throughout my childhood. So I think as an, as, as an adult, I resent that. I resent that I feel like I'm held emotionally hostage by other people's feelings. And I didn't want to identify myself with what I thought as the weaker parts of my tunis, being mm. the servant, right? Because servant can have negative connotations. Sure. But when she used the word to befriend, to be a befriender, I realized, yes, like my when I view my tunis in a positive light, that desire, you know, that was what Jesus was called, friend, it's like big title, friend of sinners, that desire to deeply connect with other people in an altruistic format, right, in a healthy to form, that's a positive. Like, that's something I'm interested in actually saying, yes, that's one of my core qualities. Mm. So it sounds like, without wanting to dive too deep uh, into it, but that, you know, some early trauma um, really triggered a sort of a defended stance against the whole... Uh, the twos need to be needed mm-hmm. um, and their need to feel indispensable in the lives of others, if that sounds right. And, and that uh, because that was a relationship you had with a parent and you just didn't want to keep playing that record. Right. And I think, you know, I, I am, I'm trying to play it cool in this interview since I'm such a fangirl of yours, but I am not a cool person, so I'm not sure how well I will succeed. But I read right when it came out your memoir, Jesus, My Father, the CIA, and Me, and how you talk about your relationship in that family. And actually, I was thinking of you particularly last night because my daughter, who's in third grade now, was at her strings performance and played cello. And I thought of you playing first chair on your trumpet and the night you walked home in the rain without having had either of your parents attend the performance. And I thought about my daughter because she, after we were done, after we had like fangirled all over her in the car, she said to me, I'm just so happy my family was there. I'm so relieved you came. And I'm like, there's no doubt in her mind we would ever be there. And yet she expressed that tension of just the desire for us to have been present. And so I look at your childhood and at my childhood, and I was so interested reading your story because in our household, it wasn't so much as getting my needs met as being sure that it was my job to be the peacekeeper, to make sure that in order for my dad not to yell or not to get mad, not to scare us, it was incumbent upon me to do whatever it took. So Mm. that you not having an opinion, not pushing back, not saying no to whatever it was he wanted or believed or preached or whatever. My whole job was to sublimate anything I wanted in order to make sure his needs were met so that we were all safe. Mm -hmm. And my mom passed away when I was young, so we were left with just my dad. So he really was, I became just an excellent I think of it as hostage negotiator, you know, and we were the hostages and I had to negotiate constantly for our well-being. Yeah, twos often uh, grow up in homes where not expressing personal needs or making emotional demands was equated with being good. Right, right. Not rocking the boat, not making dad get mad, then he will love you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's also very nine-like. Yeah, I know it is, but I, um, 
It's interesting. I was with some friends this weekend. One of them's an eight. And she was saying to me, I don't know, Lisa Joe, if you're really a two. Like, don't you love it when your friends start pushing all the buttons? To figure out <laughs> Especially the eight. <laughs> <laughs> right. She's like, you manifest to me more like an eight because you are not afraid of challenging. You're not afraid of speaking up or saying what you think. Are you sure you're a two? So that knocked me for a loop for a little bit, and I thought about it for quite a while, and I came to the conclusion that I think when I'm in an environment that feels safe, that the people I'm with really love me and know me, no matter what I say, then I feel comfortable disagreeing or having an alternate opinion. But when I don't know people yet, when I'm getting to know people, when I'm starting a new job, whatever that situation is, then I feel it incumbent upon myself to make sure I'm figuring out what other people need first before I have an opinion back. And so I'm not, I'm okay with degrees of conflict as long as I feel safe with those people first mm. and don't sense that there's something then that they will turn a switch where I'm cut off from them. Mm. All right. So just a couple of questions and let's just suss it out. Let's see if we can't just suss that out a little bit. So okay. um, we, we talk oftentimes uh, in, in the Enneagram world about, um, unconscious motivations right what right. what is it that's driving particular ways of relating to the world so <clears throat> i'll just give you two unconscious motivations and you, let's just go through them and, and make sure that you, which one you really identify with so one let's would be i have a unconscious need to meet the needs of others um uh, to uh, yeah, to, I'll leave it there. To meet the needs of others, right? Um, mm-hmm. It's a compulsive kind of trigger toward helping, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, or would you say it's more like I have a need to uh, keep the peace, um, avoid conflict, um, to maintain connection with other people? to maybe merge with the plans, the ideas, the opinions of other people? Which of those two sounds more like you? No, it's definitely to meet the needs, that knee jerk. And I think it's, you know, I heard her, heard um, Beatrice talk about how, you know, the shadow side of the two is pride, that need to be, to be important, to sense mm-hmm. that you know what people need. Mm-hmm. And I think there's definitely that sense of, I can intuit what you need. And here, let me prove it to you by getting there first. Mm-hmm. Good. I only ask that because for people listening, nines and twos are the most two common mistypes all the time. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Okay. I mean, nines forever can go for a long time thinking they're twos and twos can go a long time thinking they're nines. I mean, you know, it's there, there's two types that people aren't because you present twos and nines can often present very, the, sim- uh, very similarly on the outside. Well, let me ask you this. So one of the interesting things about being a mom and being a two, and so before I understood the Enneagram, right? And actually I write about this in my book, but I don't use the word two, I don't use the word Enneagram, I just express this. But I, for a long time, when it became late evening, kids have been fed, we've done homework, we've done all the things. Then my husband, he can just relax and sit down on the sofa. But I am now uptight until I feel like everybody else is at peace so I can go and rest. And that sounds much more altruistic than I experience it. I'm like at this point now annoyed with my children who keep needing things from me. And my husband would be 
be like, just go sit down. Like you're done. And it's almost like I realized I needed someone to give me permission to say you're done. And I, I remember like losing my temper at my kids one night and be like, why do you keep needing things from me? Can't you just tell me it's finished? Like, can't we just be finished now? And the mm. thing with kids is they are bottomless holes of need. It is never finished. And so I would feel myself exploding until my husband finally said, I don't understand why you can't just go watch a show. And I would say, I don't understand how you can. You Don't you feel guilty? Don't you feel like these kids still need something from us? And he was just like, no, I don't. And I wanted to know, what is that like? So to me, that feels like my tunis that cannot relax until I know I'm no longer held at the mercy of my children. Mm. And so I've had to learn to have vocab now. And I'll tell them things like the mommy shop is done. Like it's closed. Everybody went home. There's nothing left here now. If you need help, you don't need to figure it out yourself in order to give myself permission to check out. Mm. From- yeah, I think, I mean, I, I mean, part of it, I'm sure, has to do with being a mom, so I can't speak with any authority in that arena. Um, uh, you know, that we, you, there are certain mm, pulls on the heart, you know, that uh, I can't speak into. But <clears throat> certainly this idea of, having a hard time being able to stop meeting the needs of others. That sounds pretty two-ish to me. Um, <laughs> you know, I, uh, I, I know women of other types, my wife included, who would be a lot different than that. You know, my, would be more like, I'm done now. You know what right. I mean? Like, y- y- y'all need I to go to sleep. Like I am done now. Yes. Yes, I aspire to be able to just say that. And I'm getting better at it, but it helped me to realize – I did, it didn't occur to me at first that not everybody experiences the world that way. I thought everybody felt like at the end of the day, why do people keep needing things from me? And my husband made it clear to me that that is not how he sees the world. And that right. it was, so he and I actually will use verbiage now, even though I don't need his permission to rest. When he says the words, listen to me, you have permission, go and rest. Something in my brain clicks and I realize, oh, yes, yes, I don't need to be waiting on somebody else to tell me you can clock out now. I'm, I'm allowed. I'm, I'm a grown-up. I'm allowed. The kids are fine. Mm. Yeah, and when you say, I'm a grown-up like that, yeah. I immediately, what I hear <laughs> there is, <laughs> I do not have to live in this old script that has been running in my head since I was a little person. Wow, uh, I've never made that association before, but yeah. yes. Yeah. yeah. It's, uh, yeah. Your husband is giving you the the gift of interrupting the circuit on that old way of thinking. Right. Gosh, I know. It's funny the things we do as children. I remember if my dad would get home with groceries, even though this is just good practice, but as kids, we were always required to stop whatever we were doing and come down and help him unpack. Not out of love, but out of fear. Like we Mm. knew how much trouble we would be in and the barrage of just verbal assault that would come our way if we did not show up and I'm a 45 year old woman and when my husband gets home with groceries I feel the need to stop everything and run to him and I've just recently had to tell myself that same thing I am a grown woman who took care of kids all day and if I want to help him that's great but if I'm exhausted at the end of the day he's not going to be mad at me if I don't come and help him with that. And it's it's funny how long it can take you to rewrite those programmed channels in your brain. It is amazing how many lather, rinse, and repeats it requires, <laughs> right? And, right? 
and and you know it's so funny that that's true for every single type right i mean uh when um the three finds themselves uh constantly doing 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 uh in in pursuit of prestige and admiration and success they can stop and they can say to themselves something like what you say which is you know i really don't have to put myself through this anymore that is an old story from a previous epoch in my history that no longer needs to control me anymore if i if i choose to wake up and not live in that narrative anymore that's so interesting. You're completely changing how I will view statements that I've taken for granted as not having any deeper significance. The other thing I say, I actually tell my children this, is your your feelings are not the boss of me. Mm. Do you all hear that Enneagram 2s? Your feelings are not the boss of me. I, I would love it if I knew Enneagram, more Enneagram 2s who would, would repeat that than that. You know, not that other people's feelings necessarily are demanding it, but the, the two will hear it that way. Right. Right, right. It's very hard to resist that. I, it, that other people's feelings can literally suck me in. Like I now have become this person. And I remember my father, my mom passed away. My dad had this crazy, quickie remarriage and then divorced and then married another woman that we love. But I remember early on in their marriage, the two of them having these huge fights and her coming to get me, the 20-year-old, to negotiate, like to calm my father down and essentially you know, and I guess behave like a surrogate spouse, like do all the things he needed to not be mad anymore. Mm. And I remember, I'm from South Africa originally. So if you hear an accent coming and going, that's where it's from. But when I moved away, I, I left the country to get away from that, to try to break old habits. And then I, rem you know, I came to the States for college and I got married. We were living in Ukraine, working in the former Soviet Union. And I remember phone calls from South Africa to me to try to calm my dad down. And finally, like had to process it all with my husband and finally telling my father at one point, this is not my job anymore. Like this is not my job. Mm -hmm. And I, as an adult, I realized that's probably never the job of a child, yeah. but it took me decades to finally explain to him, it's not my job. So when I say to my kids, your feelings are not the boss of my feelings. I think, I guess I've never realized that might be something I wish I could have said as a child in my own home to my dad. Say it again. Mm. Say, that, say that phrase again. <laughs> Your feelings are not the boss of my feelings. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. How does yeah. that feel? Feels good. It's hard, but it's good. It's easier with my kids than it is with, you know, people in your life, people that you get to know. But the practice is good for me. And I think it's good for my kids to learn your, your feelings can't trample all over the feelings of somebody else. Mm. So you've been on a pretty remarkable healing journey, it sounds like. Mm-hmm. It's taken a long time. I think it's part of why I'm an author. I feel like God gives me free therapy through writing books. So your latest book is The Middle Matters. Yes, right. yes, it is. What's the subtitle again? Why That Extraordinary Life Looks Really Good on You. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> All right, a couple of sentences. What is it about? 
it's a love story to ordinary life. It's a collection of essays, stories that I think on the surface women particularly tend to think our lives are pretty boring and mundane if we don't have a viral video or 100,000 followers on Instagram. Um, but this book is a collection of completely so-called ordinary stories, you know, one of them like sobbing in the minivan over honor roll, you know, like a time to fight, like why ordinary is sexy, like a collection of essays that help us mine those beautiful parts of our life that sometimes we pass by and don't even look at. And really, that's where the gold lives, in buried in plain sight. So, it sounds beautiful. I, I guess the question I have, because I think, you know, there is this meridian that people cross um, uh, at midlife, right? And you have entered midlife. Uh, I'm not outing that. It's a We all go into yeah. it proudly with fists over our head, I hope. Um yeah. And so what changes for an Enneagram 2 at midlife? I think, honestly, the conscious identi identification of my own needs, like mm. being aware of how people, other people are not the boss of my feelings. Mm. Being, I think it's why, actually, when I was talking with our mutual friend Annie Downs on her podcast, I kind of went, I sang an aria to my resentment of being a 2, and then she was like, let's unpack that a little bit. And I realized um, in talking to other friends who were twos just how angry I was mm. at the emotional enslavement I felt because of my twoness and how somehow admitting I was a two felt like I was constantly telling other people, you get to be the boss of me. And I think midlife has been an experience of sorting that out. Like, wait, no, that's not true. I can say these are some of my motivations and this is where they came from, but I can claim different ways of understanding that. Like the befriender, how in our family, me and my kids talk a lot about what's your superpower and what's your kryptonite. And so how being able to intuit other people's emotions and needs and meet them, that's a superpower, right? That's not something to be ashamed of, but to recognize the kryptonite that comes with that and to be I think midlife has helped me really own the distinction hmm. in a way I couldn't before. I just didn't have enough experience. I didn't understand um, enough of what motivated me. Wow. So um, you mentioned uh, earlier something about going into counseling. Right? Yeah, and that was a big moment for you. You learned a lot in counseling. Yeah. So yeah. I will very boldly throw this out here quickly. What what brought you into a therapist's office? Oh yes. So I had a very difficult relationship with somebody that I worked with, and I that person's feelings became my feelings. I mean, not in a positive way. And I felt beholden and constantly. I realized I got sucked into a. Um, what do you call that codependency essentially mm -hmm. which twos i did not realize that was something that's quite easy for us and i think i was surprised at my naivete at just assuming most people's motivations are just wonderful and kind and lovely and they're just gonna think you're awesome the way you think they're awesome and sure there's degrees of that but then that relationship became very unhealthy and very difficult in my own life. And I realized I, I wasn't moving on from it and I couldn't understand why I was so stuck. Mm -hmm. And so I saw a counselor and it was like, how do counselors do that? I, I, don't, I, I, mean, I don't know how other types experience it. For me, it was like she laid the pieces of my life out like a puzzle in front of me and I couldn't make sense of the puzzle and I resented the puzzle, I couldn't see the picture. 
And then she slowly helped me move the pieces together so I could see I could see the picture. Hmm. And what was the picture? Well, she she talked she didn't talk about Enneagram, which is interesting to me in retrospect, but she talked about she said that she identified two core things, which I, I think you'll say are Enneagram two specific. She said you have to be two things you have to watch yourself for. She talked about what she called the mirror. She said you're very good at being a mirror who's good at reflecting back to other people what they're feeling. The danger becomes when those person's feelings become your feelings, right? Mm-hmm. Or hold your feelings hostage. She said, you can't, it's okay to reflect it back, but you don't actually have to take those person's feelings. And I would describe it like eat them. Like now they're my feelings, which I did not, I did. I honestly didn't know other people didn't experience the world that way. Mm -hmm. I assumed everybody does that. And so I remember telling her things like my husband makes me feel X, Y, Z way. And she would, he, Peter would always say to me, I can't make you feel something. And I would tell her, he says he can't make me feel something. And she would say, that's correct. And then I would tell her, why am I paying you this money? Of course he's making me feel this way. But she just explained to me what the mirror is and how it's not my job to actually eat the feelings just to reflect them. And then she talked about permission. That was a big one for me, how I don't need permission in order to not take on the feelings or stresses or angers or loves or hates of other people. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't need permission to rest. I don't need permission to have needs. And it really, I think there's a, the little girl in me, gosh, I've never, I guess uh, it's, I remember a moment with my father when I was a grown woman. I mean, I was married. I was home to visit him in South Africa and my poor dad, I'm making him sound just awful. And he isn't of course, always that person, right? He's mm-hmm. not that. He's had radical transformation in his life. But before that, we had a moment where we were disagreeing about something. And it was very shocking to him that I disagreed. And I tried to disagree calmly and politely. But the more I disagreed, the more he just like, he pointed his finger in my face and said, stop it. No, stop it. Mm. You, You stop saying that to me. And it was very shocking to think, oh, this is this is the dynamic and it's not that anymore but it was for most of my life so when she talked about the mirror and permission those were like keys i felt to help me unlock parts of my head and i realized i needed to give those keys to my husband and say here are ways to unlock so while you don't mean to make me feel a certain way nonetheless it's having that impact on me here's the key like how can we figure it out together mm. Yeah, you know, we in our family we're big uh, recovery people, and uh, so my wife goes to a twelve-step recovery group to deal with people like me who are in twelve-step recovery groups, <laughs> and and uh, but you know we're both on our journey, and we we just happen to use twelve-step programs as one of the tools for our own personal transformation and and uh, evolution, and uh, this has been one of the huge things for her as a nine, right? Is mm-hmm. Because twos and nines both, you share this problem, which is boundaries. Right. Um, having right. having boundaries. Uh, boundaries. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. I, I wish tell people fives I have. Was that I bought them before midlife? Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah. Wish I owned them in my twenties. <laughs> yes. Exactly. I mean, so you know, for uh, people who have lower set boundaries, twos and nines both have lower set boundaries. 
It's really important for them and empowering for them when they begin to realize, oh, wait a minute, I'm separate from you. Mm -hmm. Like your feelings don't have to be my feelings Mm -hmm. or vice versa for that matter. You know, Uh, you know, we have another friend uh, who's a two, Michael Cusick, who has been on the show a bunch and he's a therapist and he, he used to describe it this way for him. It's like, um, he used to live by the adage, um, I'm not okay unless you're okay. Yes. Yes. Right? And, right. and, and right. he would just take everybody's feelings in and subordinate his yep. to whatever theirs were. Right. Right. So it's a big deal when you start to stand up to somebody, especially, you know, someone who may be the ground zero of some of these problems, right? And you start to say, no, those are your thoughts and feelings. They're not mine. Right. And it is difficult. That's why I call it eating somebody else's feelings. I feel like the Bible often talks about eating words. And for me, it would be like eating someone's feelings and then I feel sick. And then the problem, of course, is after a while of doing that, being force fed somebody else's feelings, you get really mad and you start to resent them. Mm -hmm. And so as two, it's like this weird contradiction of like, I'm supposed to love you and take care of you, but right now I really don't like you and I feel like you're taking something from me. Um, So it's taken me a long time to figure out that I'm allowed to say no. Mm. So I love this middle life thing that that you're (laughs) about, but I also love the fact that you wrote a book called Never Unfriended. Mm-hmm. The secret to finding and keeping lasting friendships, and I, I, I looked at it because I, knowing that Beatrice would, would call you the befriender, and I love that word, th- that sort of signifier as well. But only a two would write a book called "Never Unfriended." <laughs> it's fantastic, right? <laughs> but you say something in it that I thought I, I pulled a quote from it that really caught my eye. You, you said, "If we make loving people a strategy for something else, mm-hmm. it isn't love." Mm-hmm. Now, did you know the Enneagram when you wrote that? I did not. So it's interesting to me that I wrote that whole book with no concept of the Enneagram. But I was going through therapy and recovery from some really toxic relationships in my own life. And I i mean, is it weird to credit the Holy Spirit with that, res- with that revelation? I, I really felt like in a lot of prayer and counseling, God pointed out to me that I was using... I was calling things love, like I'm loving you, but only I realized because I want you to stop hurting me or to stop demanding more of me or to stop being mean to me, um, which isn't the same as saying I love you, but you, but here, look, this is, this is what my friendship looks like. Like here are my boundaries so I can be safe and you can be safe. Mm-hmm. That book, man, it's funny of all the books I've written. That is the one like women come up to me everywhere I speak and say, you see me and these three girls, we wouldn't be here if we hadn't read your book. Like mm. we wouldn't be friends still. And I'm grateful that God gives me those moments. Cause writing the book was really, really difficult. And I felt like God basically had me chronicle just really hard friendship failures, things I had done wrong. And I would sit down at the computer with each new chapter and think, okay, what horrifying revelation about friendship and how I failed am I now going to have in order to share this chapter? So the book kind of gives me heebie-jeebies. It's a little bit like, for me, a, a public testimony to some of my hardest friendship seasons. And yet, it's the one, like women talk to me about it all the time. Yeah, you know, it's so funny you should say that. I, I was not a deep student of the Enneagram when I wrote my memoir. 
And I mean, I was certainly very familiar with it, but not a what I would call a deep reflective student of it. And then when I go back after the road back to you came out a couple of years later, I was reading, going back and reading portions of it. And I was like, oh my gosh, this book should have just been called the four story. This is the four <laughs> story right here. This is what an Enneagram four looks like and thinks like and feels like that whole book. I read parts of it and I go, oh my gosh, that's like out of a textbook. That's yeah. crazy. Yeah. Books have unintended consequences, don't they? Right. Don't they? Yeah. I know. The worst part is it's like other people get to read your therapy. Like as you are learning something, it's now enshrined for everybody else to learn yeah. from you. Yeah. You have memorialized <laughs> your wildest, craziest behaviors. Yes, I yes. know I know exactly what you're talking about. So you just mentioned, you know, repeated failures in friendships. And I think twos as they hit midlife and they get older if they're if they're doing their work can look back at some of the wreckage and they see patterns or themes um connecting the dots like okay i did the same thing five different ways in six different relationships but it was the same thing you know what i mean what what is it for an enneagram two in midlife looking back over her life and seeing you've done a lot of reflecting about relationships where did stuff go south on you as a two I think that I I really did believe it was my job to fix other people mm -hmm. and to and to like just empty who I was into them so that they could feel full. Mm. That it was my job to give away all the parts of me to make somebody else feel full. And the problem with that is it leaves you feeling resentful and angry and scattered. You don't know where the parts of you are. You don't know what you think or what you love. You've given all those things away. And then if you do all of that, and then somebody still does not love you back or you cannot fix a relationship, I mean, what it brings you to the end of every part of who you are, and the deep sense of failure is so profound. Like, the sense of deep failure. Like, I cannot get this friendship to work no matter what I do, so I, as a human being, am a failure. Mm -hmm. And the book is actually called Never Unfriended because I, I mean, this has got to be, I don't know what to make of God when things like this happen, but the night before that book came out, a book called Never Unfriended that's all about like how to love well, the things we fear in friendships and then how to speak into them. There are actually sections called What You Can Fix and What You Can't. Like I finally figured that out. But a person emailed me just to share like how badly I'd hurt them as a friend, like the night before that stupid book launched. And I remember praying and saying to the Lord, how can I possibly have a book called Never Unfriended? Like I'm a fraud. That's my narrative. Like you're a friendship fraud. You haven't loved well enough. How dare you? speak on this topic and I just felt you know I guess I think that's why I love your memoir so much because I resonate with the little boy who lay on the bed and looked at the stain on the ceiling and all the stars and realized there's a land and a God who loves us and wants to keep us safe and the voice just said to me Lisa Joe, listen to me there's no human being no human being can, that can live up to the promise to never unfriend someone we're you're too broken for that you can't no matter how perfectly you do it like only a God only a God could do that, could be willing to die to make that true. And he did. And it liberated me. I mean, I, in the rest of that book launch, I was able to say, it doesn't, it's okay. Like if I've hurt people or if I've got it wrong, it doesn't make me a failure. It doesn't make me a fraud. It makes me human who needs a God who's the only one who can live up to that promise. Mm. That's really great. I am. Um... <laughs> 
<laughs> one of the things I tell too, I don't know what it is about twos. Um, and I'm not saying it's, this is the case with about the person you were just mentioning, but you all attract a lot of crazies. <laughs> yes. I feel like yeah. we do kind of. Yeah, oh no, 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 no. You are a <laughs> magnet for crazy people. Like crazy people find you. It's like people who have like, you know, I'm talking about not in the bell curve of normal needs. You know what I mean? Like rescue dogs find you, pets. Uh, Why do you think that is? I just think that twos kind of radiate. Well, first of all, I think they naturally kind of radiate care and concern. Mm -hmm. And But you know how it is? I mean, in psychological dynamics... You know, we all walk around with hooks, mm-hmm. right? Right. And certain people pick up, oh, look, I can hook onto that. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And so very needy people will oftentimes find twos. Right. People that people who are looking to be rescued, mm. right, or need rescuing right. will find and befriend twos. And twos will go along with it because it's like, oh, wow, Here's an opportunity for me to give, 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 and give, and in return, win this person's appreciation, approval. I get to get the feeling that I'm indispensable to somebody. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. uh, I get a sense of value. Um, That's good, yeah. So twos, I always like. Oftentimes, when I've worked with twos in groups, I'll say, you know, I want you all to maybe I'll, during this two day retreat, right? I want you to write down the names of five people that need to be pitched overboard right away. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> because I'm not fooling you because mm-hmm. the, I mean they'll tell me stories like you know my my ex-husband's brother still calls me and it's like well when did you get divorced 40 years ago you know what I mean and you right. still haven't gotten rid of him because you don't you know it's like <laughs> right but they get surrounded by needy yeah. people does that happen to you or yeah and it's terrifying because there's something like mm-hmm. I'm like sweating my palms right now thinking about people who I'm not in relationship with but like I can't bring myself to unsubscribe to their email that just goes directly into my spam because I don't want them to know that I did that mm-hmm. like how crazy is that like I'm a grown up but I'm afraid and I don't know how it manifests for other twos for me like I mean I experienced almost a childhood fear of retaliation Mm. for cutting someone off or setting a boundary because that is how I experienced it so for me I don't actually enjoy the feeling of being indispensable it makes me feel claustrophobic and trapped and Mm. like I'm your slave and I now resent you for it and I don't know if I would have described it that way maybe four or five years ago but that is how I've come to understand it and so I it's interesting having gone through the last five years, particularly the writing I've done, the growth my father and I have done, and he's a very different person now. But I was saying to one of my close friends, it's it's harder for me now to take on new friendships because there's a degree to which I feel very aware of my own malleable boundaries and I'm almost afraid to let anybody into the inside for fear they'll take advantage of it and I won't be able to stop them. Mm. So. I- I'm curious what your thoughts are about other twos. I My counselor told me when I was describing my experience and then my shame for attracting that kind of friendship, just how could I not see it? Why am I so stupid? I'm a grown person. Like, how could someone take advantage of me this way? Like, what's wrong with me, right, is the narrative. She said to me, have I considered and would I consider going to a battered women's support group? Mm. And she said, the cycle that you're describing of, of attracting somebody that is this kind of personality who hooks on to you and then essentially emotionally batters you and then you feel bad about it, 
she said you would get a lot of help from just hearing people process that cycle. So I don't know if you've ever heard twos talk that way about their dysfunctional relationships, but it was very helpful to me because I would never think of a bad women as having deserved that, right? Mm. And so she said to me, why do you think that you deserve to feel bad for being in relationships that hurt you like this? Mm. I, mean, I think it's a really powerful question. Mm. Um, and <clears throat> I think that's a, a really astute insight on the part of the therapist to ask that question. Um, I mean, uh, frankly, when you, know, when you talk about the um, circumstance in which you grew up, you know, it's abusive. Right, right. And I had a, I would tell a counselor, I just kept saying things like, well, you know, everybody has hard childhoods. Like, it's just hard. And she was like, mm, yeah, no, <laughs> that's not the word I would use. Like, highly dysfunctional, abusive. And I'd be like, no, like, that's not it. And I think reading your book helped me a lot because I recognized in you that scared kid who didn't know what was going to happen next. And can I count on my parents? And will I be safe? And is it okay to need or want anything from people? And it's taken me most of my adult life to recognize, oh, that's that's not normal. Like, that isn't how you parent. Yeah, that's right. And I think, you know, whatever tools we can get our hands on to help us work that stuff out, you know, is fantastic. You know, uh, whether it's attending a woman's, you know, a battered woman's support group or whatever tools that are available to us to help make sense of our experience and more importantly, free us up in the present moment to live with more liberated spirits in the world, you know, with, you know, with good boundaries and with uh, good self perceptions and, and being, you know, whatever it takes for us to learn how to love ourselves and others better. Hey everybody. One of the lessons I've learned over the years is that not everybody benefits from a traditional 50 minute counseling session. And this is why some people can go to couples therapy or personal counseling for a long time and never really get anywhere. This is why I'm such a believer of intensive counseling and my friends at restoring the soul in Colorado created by my longtime friend, Michael Cusick to help couples or individuals experience deep change and happiness day blocks over one or two weeks. Now listen, if you can't wait months or years to get to the bottom of an issue or to experience breakthrough, you need to get in touch with my friend Michael and his extraordinary team of counselors at Restoring the Soul. If you're looking to get out of the rut you're in but can't wait months or years, call Restoring the Soul today for a free consultation with Michael's staff. Call 303-932-9777 and learn how their intensive counseling process can help you. As a special bonus, just for Typology listeners, make sure to visit www.restoringthesoul.com slash typology to download their PDF called Five Ways Unaddressed Trauma May Be Derailing Your Relationships. I wonder, how do you experience, do twos ever talk to you about how social media makes them feel? Continue. <laughs> so I'm in week six of a complete social media detox, like not on it at all, nothing, nowhere. I walked away and I, largely because I was sure God was like, hey man, for six months, can I be enough? Like, can you be filled up with just me? And I was like, I don't think so, God. And also I'm launching a book and I have a podcast and all these things I need to promote. But what was interesting to me when I finally took him up on his invitation, um, is recognizing how, for the first time, the day I woke up, the day I was off Instagram for the first time, how quiet 
it was in my head and how that first week I had so many less needs to meet. And I realized I was experiencing social media as a barrage of other people's needs, whether mm, it was just responding mm. to a comment or liking, like all these, I remember feeling so angry about hundreds of direct messages, even if they're saying kind things, because I'd be like, can't people just, I'm, I can't give any more, I can't reply to all these comments. And then starting to feel like, wait, but why is that, how has this become my job that I have to keep all these people happy? And I talked to a friend who has like hundreds of thousands of followers on Instagram and I was like, how do you keep up with all the direct messages? It's so overwhelming. And she looked at me like I was insane. And she was like, why would I do that? And I looked at her and thought, what do you, what do you mean? Why wouldn't you? And so being off social media has been a whole new chapter of understanding that it is not my job to feel other people's feelings or to meet all of their needs. And I know from talking to friends who are fours, who looked at me like I was crazy, like, what do you mean you have to keep scrolling or you have to comment or you have to like? And I said, what do you mean that you don't? Like, why are you on there then? It's social media. It's social. It's mm. about relationships. But were, and you, my four- but were you liking people because in your mind, or maybe unconsciously or consciously, it doesn't matter. It's like, I need to like you for you to like me. So that's what I wonder, because for me, no, it's I need to like you so you won't be mad at me that I didn't. Sounds like it's the all- same thing. Is it? Do you think? Yeah, it sounds okay. like a, it sounds like a shaded, just a shaded, nuanced difference of the same yeah. thing. Three, um, right? Yeah, sounds like the same right. thing. To not so be I am, unliked I is to be like, liked. I mean, right? Yeah. Right. I realized, like, it, for me, I experience Instagram particularly like a tidal wave of other people's feelings, thoughts desires, angers, hopes, dreams. And I would spend most of my days trying to hold the wave back so it wouldn't crush me. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know I was doing that. It had sort of become my full-time job not to eat the emotions of thousands of people on Instagram. Mm. Wow, this is powerful stuff for twos. It's so, man. Right? So wow. I would I would say a couple of things that are interesting to me about this conversation. I'll just give one and then, and then I want to uh, bring us back around to something to, to close out our conversation. Um, one is, I think probably in this conversation, you've used the word resentment over 10 times. Oh, ouch. Now, what do you think that means outside of the fact that my mind is fixating on a particular word? Uh, and the word <laughs> anger is a close second. Uh, yeah. but, but the word resentment keeps coming up in, in our conversation. And I think that's, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm asking that because I think it's going to really help twos to explore it. Because resentment is a major feature in the life of twos, right? Uh, what do you think means? Well, so I think you've articulated some of it, which is, um, you know, twos um, feel this compulsive need to meet the needs of others, and they meet those needs um in order to get their own needs met, right? Yes. So there's this right. quid pro quo kind of relation, this sort of contract that's, yes. that's being set up. So it's like twos love loving others, but they often do so because they are, they're looking for reassurance that they themselves are lovable. Right. Or Agreed. good. Or good. Yes. Right? Right. And 
um, when other people don't, uh, when they feel like there's more uh, withdrawals being made than than deposits back. Yes, good. That's then good. Yeah. Resentment rises yes. up. It's like I take care of everybody, but yes. when I need something, no one's there to meet my needs. Yes, totally. <laughs> nailed it a hundred percent i liked your post i followed your story i promoted your book why don't you love me back and that's the thing we interpreted as they don't love me back when maybe they just didn't have time or they didn't think about it or they were out of the country or or right? they're like, jerks teach myself yeah. or, or they're <laughs> jerks <laughs> i couldn't imagine telling someone oh you're i want to mention someone i wouldn't promote that thing or i wouldn't share about that thing i mean in what world would that happen no that's death like now somebody will hate me and then i'm i will die i will definitely die if somebody hates me <laughs> well okay so that's really actually a really big fear for twos right so let me let me just give you maybe a, like a couple of thoughts about fears that twos have right one like would be um they're afraid that no one will love them and they, they can't survive alone. So they compensate by becoming indispensable, right? That's one fear. Maybe not one you identify with entirely, but that is, that is one. Um, right. They're afraid of letting people down and of not being needed. Yes. Okay. Um, when their need for being perceived as generous, generous and unselfish and, and essential goes unmet, they feel like they don't exist. Yeah. I have been known to tell my husband, I'll call him at work and be like, hey, man, I cleaned the house. It was so gross. And if you don't walk in the door and tell me how awesome this house looks, I will be so mad at you. Like him telling me how good the house looks is more important than me cleaning the house. And luckily, I've learned to actually have those conversations. And he's awesome and will come home with all my kids who parade around the house saying, it's amazing, it's amazing, it's amazing. Mm -hmm. That affirmation is a large part of the transaction that just right. happened. So, yeah. so when I don't know. Sounds gross, but <laughs> no, it's not gross. Look, it's it's part of the human condition, you know. Um, I was listening to a podcast. I was on. I was a guest on someone else's podcast, and on it, this person shared something that they felt very ashamed of in their own world. There were three, and they were talking about how they felt ashamed that when they left stage, sometimes they. Um, realized that they hadn't been fully authentic. They were, you know, Enneagram 3, they're, they're a performer. They feel like, oh, golly, I feel a little like I was not, you know, I was kind of BSing the world there and it's not really, you know, imposter syndrome, blah, 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 that whole thing. And I, I said to him, I went, gosh, I wish you could feel the same degree of compassion I feel for you as you say that to me. I wish mm -hmm. you could feel the same degree of compassion for yourself mm -hmm. as you say it. Right. Oh, that's good. Yeah. You know, because this is just part, it's not gross. It's just part of the human condition. This is what people do when they, you know, in this broken, fallen world. These are the different, <coughs> you know, iterations, the different things that we, these little tactics and strategies we come up with to make to make life work. And then we got to get rid of the ones that aren't working for us anymore. Yeah. <coughs> right? So that's, True. A, that's a really Im important thing. And so anyway, I... I also think this resentment thing is important because um, 
it's a great signal to choose when stuff is going wrong. When you start to feel resentment coming up, yes. right? That's when right. a two should sit back and go, uh-oh, what's going on here? Yes, uh, I mean, it's an active thing I pay attention to. And I describe it even as stronger than resentment. I know when I start to feel like I hate, I'll be like, I hate that all these messages keep popping up. Why can't these people leave me alone? Then I know, okay, Lisa Joe, something is happening now because you love people. You love hearing from them. It's not their fault they're messaging you. It's you. You are the boss of you. Turn off your phone. I've had to learn to take back control and put a boundary up and resentment and really anger is a trigger for me. And I know now, oh, I, I'm empty is how I would describe it. I actually, we have a, I have a podcast called Out of the Ordinary. In our very first episode, we talk about how we felt called to the work we do. And I describe myself as like a pitcher of water who felt the need to pour out. And before I discovered blogging or writing, I always felt like I was full and I didn't know how to pour. And the job of a pitcher is to pour out. And so that was so fulfilling about writing and podcasting, et cetera. But what I realize now is there come moments where I feel completely empty and someone still wants me to pour out. And then I experience resentment or anger or rage and I have to stop myself and say oh wait 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 that's just because you haven't filled up it's not that person's fault they're not out to get you because as a two I read it as they're out to get me like they want more from me can't they can't they tell I'm empty and of course they can't I haven't told them they don't know and so that has been for me it's a huge red flag when I start to feel that way I know that's a comment about me not about them mm. and I think that's important right that you that we, you don't vilify or demonize the other person for making the ask right real yeah, or perceived yeah. it's but Definitely. i think you know uh maybe the the virtue of that you know every type right obviously has a deadly sin or a passion and a virtue that they need to work on cultivating to right offset to replace the the deadly sin so i won't go through all of them but for fours you know our deadly sin is envy and the virtue we have to move toward is um, equanimity is what it's called. Now, for twos, the deadly sin is pride. Mm -hmm. And the move that they want to make is toward humility, right? Mm -hmm. Now, mm -hmm. humility for uh, a two, I think, it involves this pr just a profound acceptance of who they are. Hmm. It is a profound acceptance of who the other mm. is. It's, it's being able to see yourself and your abilities clearly. Uh, so it's not devaluating, it's not devaluing or overestimating uh, ourselves, right? Which is what twos tend to do, by the way. Twos tend to either radically undervalue themselves or overvalue, over self-inflate, right? Yeah. They're, they're, they're like, yeah. I'm either the best or I'm the worst. And there's yes. very little in between. <laughs> What's that? There's no middle setting. No, no. It's on or off, right? And so right. so I think humility is just recognizing physical, intellectual, uh, spiritual, and emotional limitations. You know, like it's realistic self-assessment grounded in who we are, not who we might wish ourselves to be. Right? Right. So for, the, yeah. for, so for the two, it's like saying, I do not have all the time, treasure, talent, energy uh, to meet the needs of the 5,000 people who want me to answer their DMs. 
That right. that that is that to think you could do it is intense pride. I've never made that connection before. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Yes. And so humility right. is being able to say it's not mine to do. Wow. Or I just it's impossible for me to do it. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. humility. That's physically impossible. Uh, my fingers would fall off, right? Um yes. limited. Yeah, and so so that's humility. Now I would say, but listening to you on your journey, and this is you know you're connected to four on the enneagram, so I'll, uh, this will make this work a little bit. Um, I think another virtue, based on what I'm hearing from you, that would be interesting for you to work on is equanimity, which is the four's virtue. You know, we could we could use all the virtues, but for for equanimity, here's what it is. Equanimity is the ability to maintain emotional balance in the face of whatever life throws at you. So you're describing my husband because he is a four and his ability to do that is always astonishing to me. And I wish I had that. And often I have another friend who's a two and she will say this to me and I will say it to her because you're right. A two wants to know. They want to accept who they are, but they're not sure. And so I will say to her or she'll say to me, am I okay? Because it's very hard to know if I am, based on how other people are. Except Peter, he is just like a radical well of peace and sameness, no matter how. And, you know, I live here in D.C., okay, and he teaches political science. So it's an important quality to have. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no matter who talking to, no matter how upset they are, he isn't. He, I always say you're like like absorbent like the sound absorbers you put in a podcast studio like he can just absorb that and it doesn't go through him and become like a violent treble um but that is a powerful thing the ability to maintain just that space in the middle where you aren't somehow defined by whatever else is going on around you yes and twos threes and fours would fall into that trap Mm. um and you know all three numbers have have issues around identity, right? Mm. They have unstable senses of identity. So for a two, for example, twos tend to get so much of their identity through relationships. Yes. Right? And and so when you start to have your own identity separate from relationships and the demands that relationships place on you, well, you're gonna upset some apple carts in your own psyche and in, in the lives of other people, right? So, Absolutely. You know, I have a friend of mine. Used to, she's a two, and she used to say uh, the question she would ask herself all the time was, "Is this mine to do?" Ooh, that's a writing. Can you? T- I've been taking notes, everybody, throughout this entire interview. Yeah. So, yeah, she, down in- a question she would ask herself all the time is, "Is this mine to do?" And you can ask that in such a way with such equanimity and peace. You know, when you when you see a hundred emails of people have questions and stuff, you go, "Oh, yeah." is this mine to do? And it may be, uh, it may be five of these are mine to do today. <laughs> you know what I mean? Or, but not all of them and, or, and not to resent the world, uh, for making too many demands. Um, it seems to me that, that, um, there is a way to approach this with, you know, a groundedness and a feeling like you haven't given all your power away. Cause yes. if that's what it sounds like your resentment kind of comes from. It's like, you feel yes. like people have been taking your power away and that they're yes. leaving you no choice and you feel trapped and you feel shackled to expectations. And, 
you know, and so when you when you feel that way, you are going to feel resentful. Right. You nailed it. That's exactly right. Yeah. So this has been a really good conversation, hasn't it? <laughs> it was okay to get off and now try and figure out whether I'm okay or not after this conversation. Well, I hope the one thing you feel when you get off this conversation is that you're okay. Um, because that's something that I, I hope everybody feels um, when they uh, are in conversation with me. Because that's something I... I really do want people to to know. I was out with a friend, a mutual friend of Anthony's and mine last night, a wonderful singer-songwriter named Thad Cockrell. And um, he, we got to talking about, what, well, what is it you've been trying to say with your whole life? You know what I mean? Mm. Like, if you had to boil it down, what is it you've been trying to say with your life, you know? And I think it's just, I, you know, that, uh, that people are beautiful. Mm. And, you know... It's hard to be beautiful. It's hard to be human. And it's going to work out. You know, yeah. that's, that's pretty much all I got. That's the only sermon I know. <laughs> that's good. Right. Yes. No, I appreciate that tenderness. I think you, you approach human beings with a real tenderness, but also a curiosity that I think is important to understand why. Why are we this way? But also, how do we keep moving forward? into something else that we don't have to live trapped in the stories we've told ourselves or that people have told us since childhood. Yeah. Amen. Well, Lisa, your, your, your new book, tell everybody about the title again. The middle matters. Why Mm -hmm. that extraordinary life looks really good on you. I want to encourage everybody to go out and get it along with never unfriended the secret to finding and keeping lasting friendships. I have enjoyed this conversation with an Enneagram 2 today. And uh, would you promise to come back and join us again? Oh my gosh, yes, please. And now you know I'm going to hold you to it because this 2 will just never let a friendship go. <laughs> like a friendship mafia. There's no getting out. <laughs> oh man, well, you are free to call any time. And thank you so thank much you. again. And you, Typology listeners, you who are the beloved, hear the words of the great Oscar Wilde. Be yourself. Everybody else is already taken. See you next time.